Welcome to the No Shame on You podcast, where we talk to mental health professionals, educators, and advocates. No Shame on You is a 501c3 organization dedicated to eliminating the stigma associated with mental health conditions and raising awareness. Our goal is for people who need help to seek it, for family members and friends to know how to provide proper support and to save lives. Now, here's your host, No Shame on You's founder and president, Miriam Ament. Welcome to the 10th podcast of No Shame on You, an organization dedicated to eliminating the stigma associated with mental health conditions and raising awareness. My name is Miriam Ament, and I am the founder of No Shame on You. Today, we are thrilled to be joined by Allie Golden, author of A Good Soldier. No Shame on You was honored to have Allie speak at our On the Table last year, and we are delighted to be joined by her today. Hi, Allie. So great to have you on our podcast. Thanks for having me, Miriam. It's great to be here. Thank you. Uh, Let me start by asking, what is your background? Where did you grow up? Where did you go to school? All that good stuff. So I grew up in the suburbs of Washington, D.C., on the Maryland side, just about 15 miles northwest of D.C., and it was a very, very nice community Um, at the time, very a very idyllic place to grow up, but also very diverse and uh, very stimulating and also safe. So it was it was very nice. I actually went across the country when I was 18 to go to school um, here in the Chicagoland area where I'm currently based. I know you are as well. Um, I went to Northwestern University. And uh, after that, I lived in New York for a brief time and then came back to Chicago. And I've lived in Chicago ever since. So at this point, I've lived in Chicago longer than I lived in Maryland, even though I grew up in Maryland my whole childhood. So that's kind of interesting. People are like, do you consider yourself an East Coaster or a Midwesterner? And I don't know. I guess I would have to say I'm split between both. But many people probably know how that feels. But. That's very funny. That's very cool because I spent some time in New York, so I understand you're in both places. Uh, very cool. Uh, in your memoir, A Good Soldier, you tell the story of growing up with a parent living with a mental health condition and the uncertainty and unpre- unpredictability that comes with that. So first of all, I want to thank you so much for sharing such an important story. Uh, and I wanted to ask, what advice would you have for children or adult children with family members who have mental health conditions? Well, I, I think the biggest thing that I tell people, Miriam, is that you have to set boundaries and be able to live your own life. This was something that I struggled with for 23 years. My mother uh, suffered from borderline personality disorder, which is uh, a mental illness that is characterized by unstable relationships and uh, poor emotional control. And as a result, she was often suicidal. She was often inconsistent in her parenting, meaning that she would appear to love me and care for me. And then the next day, I wouldn't know what I had done. And she would suddenly be threatening and abusive. And you just never know how, knew how the day was going to transpire. And it was very, very difficult. And for 23 years, uh, I lived with the constant uncertainty of, of not knowing what was going to happen. And, and my entire emotional well-being was dependent upon what my mother did on any given day. And so what I would say to people who are going through the same thing is that you have to take control of your own life and recognize that while it's very important to try and support that person and get them the help that they need, at the end of the day, it's their decision to make whether they're going to get better or not and how they're going to undertake a recovery. It's the classic uh, cliche of you can lead a his- a horse to water, but you can't force them to drink. And that's the same thing with a mentally ill friend or relative. You can do everything you can to do the research and and point them in the right direction, but 
they're the ones who are responsible for their own life and, and you have to be responsible for yours and that means taking care of yourself and setting boundaries so that you're able to have an emotionally healthy life as well. And uh, this was something that unfortunately I didn't learn until very far down the line. And as a result, much of my life was, was pretty traumatic. And I know it's hard to do, but if there's one message that I can pass along, it would be to to try and do your best to seek social support through friends, through uh, professional help, therapy, so that you're, you're able to do that. Because I, I think that it's very easy for a mental illness to negatively impact an entire family and even an entire community in some cases. So take care of yourself, set those boundaries. That would be my biggest piece of advice. Right. Thank you. That's that's some very important advice. Um, you mentioned just now your mom um, living with a personality disorder. Um, in the book, you describe how when you had something go, like when, when you were going through a tough time, she was there for you and almost happy that like she could be there for you when things were, weren't going well for you but then when you had some a lot of great stuff going on it, you you would sometimes get guilted could you could you speak to that at all and what that was like Miriam that's that's absolutely true my mother was the the classic case of like misery loves company she always wanted to hear when something was going wrong and in fact that was when she was the best parent she was <laughs> the person who was always great to talk to when I had a problem. She always had the perfect thing to say, the perfect solution, whether it was a best friend moving across the world or not getting into a particular academic program. Like my mom was the one that I wanted to talk to when when things went poorly. But I, I also sort of learned to gravitate toward that because I knew that if I was miserable, she would love me. And yet when I would be successful, uh, there would be jealousy. There would be uh, her pushing back and and saying to me, this is not going to continue to go well, you don't deserve this, or she would do something in her own life that would cause me to focus my attention toward her instead of on my own life. And and probably the best and most unfortunate example of that is when I was pregnant with uh, my first and and my second child. The the first child I became pregnant with, I actually miscarried. Um, And um, when I first became pregnant, my mother was very threatened. She felt that this entity that didn't even weigh a pound would supplant her place in my heart. And when I miscarried that pregnancy, she was actually kind of happy um, in a perverse way. And then when I was pregnant for the second time and it looked like the pregnancy would go through, um, unfortunately for me, um, that was when my mother uh, chose to end her life. So those were pretty stark examples, but she just was not capable of looking at a child and saying, I'm proud of her. I want her to be successful. I think she would have, this is this is also a great example of how illness takes over. I don't think my mother was inherently an evil person who would wish doomsday on their child, but this is the power of, of a personality disorder that's combined with, in my mom's case, an, an opioid addiction and also depression. So it, it can be very, very toxic. And I, I like to look back and sort of think that that was the illness talking and not necessarily what she truly believed. But uh, that, that's a hard pill to swallow too sometimes. You, you wonder... And I'm sure a lot of people listening to this ha- can relate. You wonder how much they had control over their own actions and behavior, and it, it's it's sort of a question that I think, even though my mother has passed away, I think I'll, I'll kind of live with for life in a way. I'll, I'll always be wondering, what can I blame her for, and what can't I? Um, it's just one of those things I'll never really have the answer. Right, right. But it sounds like you you've you've thought a lot of this through, and you really have a, a great perspective on kind of what what went on and and her reactions to certain things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I try. 
No, it's not. It's not easy. But I, I, I admire you for for speaking about it, for sharing your journey. It, it, it can help so many people because I, I know people have gone through this with with relatives and with, and with friends who are there for you when something's going badly, but are not happy for you when all of a sudden things are going better. And I know I know people like that, and it's a very tough. It's a tough relationship to be in. So, and all the more so with a parent. That's that's just you know obviously very hard to navigate. Um, you also write in your book about your own mental health journey and seeking treatment. Based based on your own experiences, what would you tell someone who is on the fence about seeking mental health treatment? I would tell somebody who's on the fence that there's no just not to <laughs> not, not to weave in the name of the organization, but you know, no shame on you. You know, it's it's there's no shame in in seeking help at any juncture. I think even if you are 100% a person who doesn't have any technical mental illness or mental health issues, the mere fact of dealing with someone who does is enough of a reason to seek treatment because it is so stressful and it is so emotionally taxing. So I actually tell people to err on the side of if you've never needed it in your life before and you're not sure if you need it now, like go for a consultation. Talk to someone. I, I heavily recommend, I mean, any kind of therapy can be helpful to some extent, but I recommend cognitive behavioral therapy because I like the, the emphasis on action that it provides. It, it allows you to, to really take control of your thoughts and then use those thoughts to change behaviors, which is better to me in a way than just kind of talking about things. I think talking about things can be good. It can be helpful to vent, but to really have tools in your arsenal to be able to to, to cope with what can be an ongoing, really kind of insurmountable situation in many cases. And and so that's what I tell people in terms of my own journey. You know, it, it was tough. And I still to this day am not totally sure I even have any kind of actual mental illness. I think what happened with me was that I grew up modeling the behavior of my mother. And so when it came to form, forming relationships, I just didn't know how to do it. And it wasn't that I was mentally ill. It was just that I had all of these kind of maladaptive patterns, particularly in my romantic relationships with people who will see, um, who read the book, will see that, that, that that's where I had the biggest problem was when I just didn't know how to be intimate with people in an appropriate way. And I think that often happens to a child who's, who's raised with a particular role model. And and that was something that because they went so poorly, it really did lead to some actual depression. It's a, it's a great case of when environmental uh, environmental triggers can lead to actual illness. So I've had different times in my life when things have been particularly stressful and I've struggled a little bit, but overall I would have to say I just got really lucky because I did not inherit my mother's mental illness. And as we all know, or most of us probably know, um, there's a large genetic component to this, um, particularly with people who commit suicide. There's There's just a large instance of people in the same immediate family or multiple generations and I consider myself to be enormously fortunate, not only that I avoided severe mental illness, but also that I was resilient. That right. I, I never, ever take that for granted because it's not anything that I did to get that characteristic. My brother and I grew up in the same environment. And when, in many ways, my brother was treated better than I was because she was my mom, he was my mom's favorite. Right. And yet he was not as resilient. And I, there's nothing different about us, except that I got that trait and he didn't. And I feel incredibly grateful for that. Right. You you describe uh, in the book some, some really tough times, especially when you were in at Northwestern, and some people would have, you know, might not have been able to finish their degree or all sorts of things. So your resilience clearly shows just, just in, in the book and in those situations, some of the stuff 
you went through and had to go home for and all that kind of stuff. So it's truly remarkable. You just touched on your mom ended up dying by suicide. And you also have spoken and been involved, you mentioned this in your book, uh, with survivors of suicide loss. What have you learned from your own journey and talking with others? Well, with respect to my own journey, the, the worst part of it for me was the alienation. Even though my mother had, had been one of those situations where it was a will she, won't she for many, many years. And I guess one could argue that it wasn't really a surprise when she um, died by suicide. But nevertheless, when it actually happens, it's very, very shocking. And the fact that you can't just readily tell anyone, I, I mean, you can, but I think that it is such a personal type of loss that's different from someone dying by uh, by cancer, by heart disease, that it's something that you, you really find yourself feeling very alone. And I just didn't really feel that there were a lot of people who understood what I, what I was going through, even though I, I did tell my close friends and family, and they did try to be supportive. But until you've been there, it's a club nobody wants to join. And so one thing that was very important to me, in addition, this was actually before I wrote this book. I, I only came out with this book in the last year, but I've been working with survivors of suicide for about 10 years now. And I wanted to be the person that when someone was grasping for straws, not knowing how to process it, not feeling like anyone understood or they had anyone to talk to, I would be the person that they would talk to. And so I partnered with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. They have a survivor network where you can go, just go to their website, type in your zip code and what kind of loss you've had. And they will find you someone, preferably in your area, who can do an in-person visit. But even if you live somewhere which is pretty remote, you can do a video conference or a phone conference and you will be able to talk to someone who's had the same sort of loss, who can really understand where you've been. And that, that work has been extraordinarily important to me over the last decade. I've visited with dozens and dozens of people. And unfortunately, it's never a good experience. You wish that you had met those people under different circumstances. But it, it's rewarding in the sense that that's, that's the kind of support that I wish that I had had when it happened. So hopefully I can give that piece to other people. And it's also what I'm trying to do with the book is um, I've heard since publishing the book from from lots and lots of people, mostly women, who have the same type of relationships with their moms, and they're still struggling. They're still going through it. It's not over for them. And that breaks my heart because I was literally in that situation for 23 years. And some of the women I hear from are in their 60s and their mothers in their 80s or 90s, and it's still going on. And it's like to have your life just completely crushed by that type of situation. I really have so much sympathy and empathy uh, for those people and hope that, and I'm glad that at least the book helped them feel less alone. Exactly. You're, you're really helping so many people feel like there's someone out there who gets it and it's not just them and people have been through it. Uh, so I, I thank you on behalf of them and, and so many people who I know personally have, have, were so happy that you spoke at one of our events last year and, and that, that the book was brought into their lives. I've had people coming up to me just happy that they learned about the book from a no shame on you thing. So thank you. I'm honored to be talking That's to you now great. and to know you. Yeah. So, um, so I wanted to uh, close with, you know, please share anything else you want to share with us and also where can people find a good soldier and, and any other uh, things you, that you, Ellie Golden, have going on. Yeah, well, I uh, I would love for people to check out A Good Soldier. In particular, I'd love for people who are going through the same type of experience to let me know what they think and to reach out for support. I uh, I've, I really do feel um, that the risk of a domino effect in these types of situations um, is real in, in the sense that sometimes when there's a community, um, 
a suicide in a community that other other kids or other people feel like that's a solution for them as well. Um, there's been some problematic information in the media about suicide. Just a lot of high-profile people have ended their lives. And then there was the show um, 13 Reasons Why, which Mary, you and I have talked about, that has had um, some negative impact as well. And so we have to um, bond together to to really help people who are most at risk. And I feel like the people who are most at risk are the people with relatives um, who have either died by suicide or uh, who the people who are struggling with these types of situations that I talk about in A Good Soldier. So I would love to know people's thoughts and I would just love to, I'm building a, a community of people, um, not as well as you have, Miriam, but I'm building a community of people who, who are there to support one another. So you can find A Good Soldier on AllieGolden.com. That's A-L-L-Y-G-O-L-D-E-N.com and also more information about me and um, also on Amazon. And the the final thing that I would say is that uh, Allie Golden is a pseudonym. Um, it's not my legal name. And I did this in order to protect my children from learning about this story before they're old enough. Uh, I would just, my, my son's 10, so he would figure it out. And I don't want to tell my kids the story quite yet. And uh, I assure people that, you know, if they see in the bio, you know, that I'm a multi, multi-published author and that I write for New York Times and Wall Street Journal, it's true. It's just under the diff- a different name. I found that some people get confused by that and even think that there's some, um, you know, lying going on there. Not the case at all. It's just that you won't find that stuff under Allie Golden. But if it's important to you to know it, email me and I'll tell you. <laughs> I'm just not going to put it out there in the public right now. Right. Understood. Understood. Well, thank you so, so much for, for joining us today and for all you've done to raise mental health awareness and share your story and help so many people know that they're not alone. So thank you for all that you have done and continue to do. You're welcome. Thank you, Miriam, for all you've done and continue to do. You're an amazing resource for this community, and I'm, I'm thrilled to be a part of it. Well, thank you. Well, I look forward to being in touch soon, so thank you so much. Welcome.